It is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. We need urgent response. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't waste things. Think this world is precious. Think your time is precious. I think I know more about the environment than most people. All you can talk about is the money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. Hello and welcome to Hot In Here. I'm Jackson. And I'm James. And this is our podcast where we talk about climate change. So, James, have you had any climate conversations since we last spoke? Well, your conversation with Michael Mann definitely filled me with optimism, but I don't think I have the social graces to talk about climate change in the pub yet. Yeah, it can be pretty daunting to speak about. And that's why this week we have enlisted the help of Australia's number one science communicator, Dr. Carl, to make the complex science of climate change hopefully a bit easier to understand. Think you'll teach us some icebreakers? Well, if anyone can, it would probably be Dr. Carl, because unlike us, he's a qualified scientist, doctor and engineer. He's the author of Dr. Carl's little book of climate change science and even has an asteroid named after it. I am genuinely excited to hear him speak. He has a way of making anything involving science sound charming. Yeah, and he's also just a really, really nice guy. So I'm also hoping he can bust some climate myths for us and set the record straight because... Climate change misinformation is polluting the internet. Sounds like a great atmosphere for a conversation. Okay, that's enough, James. I'll be speaking with Dr. Carl after this break. Dr. Carl Kruschelnitsky, thank you so much for your time and welcome to Hot In Here. Uh, Dr. Jackson Williams, thank you. Uh, I'm wearing this stupid sling for shoulder surgery, so hence no colourful shirt, just a boring T-shirt bummer. By the way, we had to do a new invention with the T-shirt. We cut up the back uh, and then put Velcro so that way I can slide over my uh, temporarily immobilised right arm. Well, I'm wishing you a speedy recovery. Now, it might come as a surprise to some people, but you wrote your first story on climate change all the way back in 1981, but it was actually known as the greenhouse effect then. So how has the language of climate evolved over the past four decades? Um, It's gone from uh, greenhouse effect to uh, global warming to climate change. And that's as a result of what? A better understanding of the science? Um, a better understanding of the science combined with uh, some work by the Republican Party in America to try and give it a less scary name. So um, climate change sounded less scary than global warming. For a long time, they did try denying that it was happening. And when they couldn't, they finally said, oh, well, we'll just relabel it. And it actually turns out to be slightly more accurate because in some parts of the world, while there will overall be a warming, there will be a little bit of cooling as well here and there. Do you remember what your first story was 40-odd years ago? Ah, yes, indeedy. Um, uh, the story was related to the fact that back in 1973, you know, seven years earlier or so, um, the world's largest reinsurance company, Munich Re, had increased premiums in certain areas because of a thing they called the greenhouse effect. They said, we've got records, we're very, very confident that this greenhouse thing is happening. The scientists have been talking about it for a long time. We're confident we're just going to increase premiums. Nothing personal, it's just business back in 1973. 
Now, as it turns out, it took the scientists till 1977 to be fully, fully confident, as opposed to be fully confident, that uh, global warming uh, greenhouse effect was real. Um, and in fact, it took them till 1990 before they could start making good predictions. The scientists are fairly conservative. But back in the mid-70s, they were very confident that it was happening. And then in 1981, I wrote a story saying, well, the insurance companies reckon this is real, so they're charging you more. The scientists need just a bit more proof. Um, They know that it's real, but they want to have enough data to be able to make good predictions because if you can't predict anything, it's not science. So that took until 1990. And in 1990, the scientists said, hey, look, we're very, very confident this is real. And at the same time, the fossil fuel companies who had been doing the best research uh, started covering it up and saying there's no such thing as global warming. Uh, Look over there, there's a gorilla instead, trying to divert away from it. Okay, so for decades now, Dr. Carl, scientists have been confident that climate change is real, that it is happening, and that humans are responsible. Yet in 2022 in Australia, there are still some people, including prominent public figures in the media and in politics, who seem to still have trouble accepting the science of climate change. What do you attribute that to? Okay, so to back up, since 1990, all the scientists in, uh, global, in um, the climatologists, they're very confident that it's real and they can make predictions which, as they've got more data, have got better. Secondly, beginning around 1990, big fossil fuels started spending big, up to a billion dollars a year, and you can buy a lot of favours or influence if you spend a billion dollars a year at all sorts of levels. Thirdly, we've had the rise of the Murdoch press coming into action saying, look, it's not real. Um, and if it was real, it'd only make um, mean that you'd wear one less jumper on a winter's night, so being on global warming. So uh, that combination of big newsprint uh, power combined with um, up to a billion dollars a year on lies and disinformation has led to the situation that we're in now where on one hand, out of the world GDP, the whole world GDP, which is about $85 trillion, out of the whole world GDP, fossil fuels get given directly and indirectly 8%. 8%? As for free. They get 8%. Now, to find that out, uh, go looking up the International Monetary Fund. Now, these are very hard-nosed financial people, and they're not sort of hippy-dippy lovies. They're saying, yeah, give us some money, show us some money. We don't care about anything, just show us some money. And they had two uh, reports, one in 2013, one in 2019, called Energy Subsidy Reform. Okay, so those three words, energy, that's the stuff we need to keep our society going, love energy. Subsidy, that's free money. Investment, you want your money back. Subsidy, you give it away for free. Reform, they're saying, should it be reformed? And they said uh, that firstly, both in 2013 and 2018, that of all of the revenue, sorry, all of the revenue collected by all the governments on earth, 8% which is more than the military budget, is given as direct and indirect subsidies to big fossil fuel. Indirect, for example, they don't have to clean up after them. If you've got a factory um, killing animals, you don't just, you're not allowed to just chuck the animal guts into the nearest river. You've got to get rid of them, whereas the fossil fuel companies are given the immense privilege of throwing away their stuff for free, plus they get all sorts of subsidies everywhere else. So... That's a huge amount of money they're getting, and we reckon we can fix global warming with just 2%. 
of government revenue. Just 2%. 2% would be enough to do it, and yet we're giving away 8% to these people. Um, and it's causing bad things, like besides, for example, uh, briefly, uh, on the 4th of January in the year 2021, Sydney was the hottest place on earth at over 48 degrees C. So besides that, and one-fifth of all the forests in Australia burnt, and, God, and, and there's all sorts of other things happening around the world, besides that, first effect of global warming, we have tipped the earth off its axis. What does that mean? Well, the Earth goes around the sun. It's a globe. It's spinning uh, roughly once every 24 hours. And um, it's tilted at about 23 and a half degrees from the vertical. And there's a whole bunch of activities that the Earth's orbit does. You know, the Earth's orbit goes from circular to elliptical and it tilts very slightly. And if you're looking at the north-south pole, what we've noticed since 19, uh, sorry, 18. 1891, we can measure stuff, we humans, it's been heading the north-south spin axis towards the equator at about five centimetres per year. No big deal. And in 2005, it chucked a lefty, started going parallel to the equator and sped up by a factor of three. And if you think about it like um, a bicycle wheel that you're trying to balance, You've got to have the weights just dead right. And if you've got it spinning just the way you like it and then you shift away a little bit, it'll spin in a slightly different weight. Wait, well, in the same way, if you factor in the billions of tonnes of ice being melted each year and the ice goes from here to somewhere else, it goes into the ocean and starts flowing around, and then you put that into the equations, it fits in exactly with the Earth being tipped off its axis. Isn't that amazing that we humans, who could all fit into a box a kilometre by a kilometre by a kilometre have been able to tip a globe 12,500 kilometres in diameter off a little bit. And, and the second thing we've done is almost certainly, we're still getting the latest data, but almost certainly we have made the Earth spin faster. Isn't that amazing that we can do that? And in this case, think about the ice skater on one leg spinning quickly with their arms out, and they bring their arms in towards the spin axis of their body, and they go faster. It's called transfer of angular momentum, if you want to look up the physics of it. And in this case, we've been melting ice at high altitude and bringing it down to sea level. And so of the variation in the day's length, the day's length does vary, 32 of the shortest days ever recorded happened last year. None of this sounds good, Dr. Carl. The good news is that we can uh, stop it and reverse it. Read Michael Mann's book, um, which is uh, The New Climate War, and also you want a bit of history on how we got to this place with the big fossil fuel companies messing things up, um, Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes. But the good news is that we can both stop and reverse rising carbon dioxide levels and climate change. We can bring them back to what they were in the 20th century, so long ago, with the technology we have today. We don't need any new so technology. So and reverse. Hang on a second. What do you mean we can reverse climate change? Well, um, we've got a dynamic situation where we're dumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, about 37 billion tonnes a year, give or take. They act like a one-way valve. The physics is well known. 
um, and they trap the heat of the sun. How much heat do they trap? As of early 2022, the amount of heat, of sun heat, trapped each day by the greenhouse gases is equivalent to the heat given off by exploding 600,000 Hiroshima bombs per day. Can you just repeat that statistic again? Okay, so greenhouse gases work by the by trapping the sun's heat. They're not working by you know the actual heat from burning. It counts for a little bit, but it's microscopic. The main thing that greenhouse gases do is trap the heat of the sun. They let it in. They don't let it out. How much extra do they trap each day? Six hundred thousand Hiroshima bombs, equivalent of heat per day. Now you can get away with that for a day or a week. Or a month. After a decade, you see effects, and after several decades, you see that you've tipped the Earth off its axis, and the days are getting shorter. And that city was briefly the hottest place on Earth, and we burnt all one fifth of all the forests in Australia. But we can reverse it because the way we can reverse it is this: the easiest and simplest thing that we can do, with regard to uh, global warming, climate change, greenhouse effect, is to not burn any more carbon, and we can get most of the way down that pathway within about 10 years. And then the sinks will begin to suck up stuff and then we can add to the natural sinks. By We might even have to go for artificial sinks like direct carbon capture. But just using today's technology, we can reverse global warming by simply, we can fix 90% of global warming by not burning any more carbon. Okay, Dr. Carl, so we already have both the knowledge and the technology to stop and reverse climate change. So when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, do you believe this is a race we can win? Yes, um, it's not irreversible. Something irreversible would be like the melting of the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. And that's a reasonable size glacier, you know, the size of the United Kingdom. But what's more important is that it acts like a plug to many, many thousands of cubic kilometres of ice behind it, hundreds of thousands of cubic kilometres of ice. And if they were to flow in the ocean, if the Thwaites Glacier were to melt and pop out of the cork, it's like a cork in a bottle, you're looking at something like two-thirds of a metre rise in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, something like that. That is not irreversible in 500 years, but it is essentially irreversible in the lifetime of anybody living today. And we can reverse it all, we can stop that from happening with today's technology, which basically means getting different politicians. Greta Thunberg is right. The politicians have been bought. The fix is in. And it just happens that there's an election coming up in Australia. So what's the best way Australians can make a difference? Uh, Around the world, vote for politicians who recognise the seriousness of it and who have not been influenced by the big fossil fuel companies. Let's say Australia gets new politicians who promise to take meaningful action. What specifically would you like to see them do? Ah, there's the international point of view and the Australian point of view. The the international point of view, go to the website drawdown.org, drawdown.org, and that gives you an international point of view of how to stop dumping carbon dioxide into the environment and how to increase the drawdown via natural and maybe artificial means. 
for the local Australian point of view, go to bze.org.au. BZE stands for Beyond Zero Emissions. And they've got something called the Million Jobs Plan. And about 13 years ago, they came out with a plan for getting Australia to zero carbon emissions for for, uh, electrical power within 10 years. And because you didn't have to pay for the fuel, it would have been one third of the price. That was that opportunity was known to the politicians, wasn't taken up. Now they've got a new view. And the good thing about renewables is that the jobs are all local. There's none of this FIFO fly in, fly out, where somebody flies out of their home and comes back three weeks later, stays at home for one week and then flies out again, which is the big mining jobs where we're taking dirt out of the ground and selling it. That destroys families. If you're out there as a member of a family only one week in every four, Mate, after a year, you're not a member of the family anymore. So it's all there, bze.org.au and drawdown.org for the international point of view. A lot is made, Dr Carl, or at least in some quarters a lot is made of the cost of climate action. What about the cost of inaction? Well, already we're seeing that the direct and indirect costs um, of global warming, climate change, are of the order of $1.5 trillion a year. And consider that not far from where I live in Sydney, in New South Wales and Australia, a bunch of people came down with a disease that used to be found only in the tropics and they're being seen here in Sydney. And they had to go to intensive care at $8,000 a day. Did the bigger fossil fuel companies pay for that? No. So you add up all of the costs, you're getting, you know, like $1.5 trillion a year, and $1.5 trillion a year would fix it. 2% of the world GDP would get us there really quickly. Uh, we'd have to do something like the Americans did in World War II, when on the 17th of December, 1941, um, Pearl Harbor happened. Now, up until Pearl Harbor, in the previous half century, the Americans had made 3,000 planes, 3,000. In the next four years, they didn't make 3,000, they made 300,000. And that's the sort of effort that we have to do and we can do, and it'll be good for the economy because uh, you'll be churning through stuff and manufacturing stuff. It'll also be good for people's jobs and it'll also be good because you won't actually be having to kill people by having a war. war. Wars are great for the economy, but the trouble is you end up with a lot of dead people. So a war against climate change. We need to be on a war footing. Yeah. Um, according to the uh, figures I saw uh, in the year 2018, out of the 45 million people who died that year, one-fifth died because they were breathing in dirty air from burning stuff. We don't have to burn anything to get our energy. Burn, even in Australia, where in Sydney and in Melbourne, you can see the sun kissing the horizon, which you can't see in Asia because of the air pollution. Even in Sydney and Melbourne, you've got about 2,000 people a year dying from air pollution. And that's in a very clean city. So suddenly those people wouldn't be dying. And when these people die from air pollution, it's not as though they just suddenly drop dead. They die slowly over years, in hospital wards, kicking up the medical costs and then drawing upon the health costs of the community rather than paying taxes and contributing to the community and not even counting the 
distress to the families. Dr. Carl, if it's okay with you, I want to get you to bust some climate myths because climate change misinformation can unfortunately easily fool people. Mm-hmm. Lay it on me. Global warming isn't real, Dr. Carl, as it's still cold in some parts of the world. Um, if you do measurements about the whole world using proper thermometers, such as the so-called Stevenson box, have you heard of um, Treasure Island, the book Treasure Island and, Long, uh, and Robert Louis Stevenson? One of his relatives invented the Stevenson box, which is a big box with um, louvers to let the air flow through. And if you measure the temperature with those around the world, you'll measure that the temperature is rising in the lower atmosphere. If you go and then put drones into the oceans, you'll measure the upper levels of the ocean, one kilometre up the top kilometre, is also warming. In fact, that's where 93% of the heat is um, going to. Um, and And then if you do the numbers, you'll find that that's equivalent to what you predict the greenhouse gases should be trapped trapping which currently is around 600,000 Hiroshima bombs of heat per day. And then if you look at the satellites which have been in orbit for a couple of decades measuring the heat output of the Earth, you'll see the heat output has been dropping and currently it's around 600,000 Hiroshima bombs uh, per day less than what we uh, reckon it would have been in the Industrial Revolution. So whichever way you measure it, uh, overall it's warming. But you could have somebody who's dying of leukaemia, but by God their fingernails look great. Yeah, so you can have overall warming, but here and there you can have cold. Uh, cold. So, for example, we are predicting that if we were to do massive melting of the Arctic, that the fresh water released would reverse the flow of water in the Atlantic, the thermohaline current, and then not allow warm water to come from the equator up towards Europe and America and cause cooling. So, yes... Sure. If you look at a complicated system, you're going to have cooling where, on average, there's overall warming. Sure. Part of the system is a complicated system. Dr. Carl, my uncle has read on Facebook that the Earth's climate has always changed. The Earth's climate has always changed. It's called the Milankovitch effect in the short term. So there's these three factors that vary in the Earth's orbit, um, named after Newton Milankovitch, a Serbian astronomer of the 1920s. The Earth's orbit goes from elliptical to circular and back again on a 100,000-year cycle. The tilt of the Earth goes between 21.5 to 24. Four and a half degrees on a twenty-three thousand on a forty-two thousand year cycle, and then the actual tilt of the Earth slowly sweeps out a circle like a slowly spinning top over a twenty-four thousand year cycle. If you put these into the equations and measure the amount of sunlight heat landing on the Earth, you can see that this fits in exactly with the ice ages that have been happening over the last three million years. So yes, the ice Earth's climate has always been changing, but the, changing, the change that we're seeing now, uh, firstly, is much more rapid than any other change we've seen. And secondly, we know from the plain old physics that is caused by the greenhouse gases. We, we can measure the greenhouse gases. We can measure the less heat leaving the Earth's atmosphere. We can measure the extra heat trapped in the Earth's atmosphere. So this one is definitely caused by humans. Although we have had cases in the past where it's been hotter and colder, but this one we're very confident was caused by humans. Okay, very confident. So, Dr. Carl, there's quite clearly so much at stake here, but it sounds like you were optimistic. You believe we are up for the challenge. Um, we 
can do it. The only thing stopping us is that billion dollars a year. Um, and at the moment, the cost to the environment is roughly equal to the cost of fixing it. Over the next few years, it will get more expensive. It just seems to make so much sense. Uh, on the other hand, you can overcome common sense with a billion dollars a year of influence from, from the big fossil fuel companies. Okay, Dr. Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you on Hot and Here. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and I apologise for not wearing a bright shirt and it was just a boring T-shirt, but it was necessary to get me through the sling for the next six weeks. And, and look, yes, we can fix it, and I'm confident that we will. It just makes economic sense. Okay, James, that was my chat with Dr. Carl. And just like Professor Michael Mann, who we interviewed in the first episode, uh, both are pretty fed up with politicians. Yeah, seeing it from Dr. Carl actually hits home a bit more, right? Like the man who's just like constantly enthusiastic, you can kind of see something like punk rock when he, when he, or just even a bit different, like a real frustration when he talks about big business and politicians giving way for each other. It really grinds his gears and, it, you know, but he still remains charming. Yeah, he remains very composed, but deep down you sense that he's really, really frustrated with, you know, so much greed um, and decades of inaction. You feel like it really upsets him, but he doesn't really give in to that anger. He doesn't, and I think that's why he is, like, Australia's science communicator. You know, he can He's a national treasure. He is a national treasure. He really is, you know. Like, you turn on Triple J on a Thursday and you expect to hear that kind of charming voice. And, you know, in that chat with you, I'm sitting here smiling ear to ear just because it's Dr. Carl. And he's talking about the earth is off its axis. Like, that is terrifying. Human beings have done that. But he does it, you know, he he lays things out. And he's always kind of, uh, like, has a pragmatic undertone to what he's talking about. So you feel like there is something you can do. But with climate change, you can hear the urgency in that you need, we need to do something now. And he's just so good at helping people make sense of what can be really confusing and sometimes scary topics like climate change. I think, you know, from like, you can, you can see it in most science debates that science really lacks great communicators. So to have someone like Dr. Carl, you know, who can communicate science to the layman that we are, it, it's, it, it was honestly, it was great to hear. And, you know, I feel like we got a real hol- holistic idea of climate change in that chat. Yeah. One thing that he touched on that really blows me away is how much money still goes to subsidizing fossil fuels, the very thing that is causing climate change or is at least or is at least the dominant cause, yet at the same time, you know, there, there is an increasing amount of money being invested in clean energy, but it's really not enough. Yeah, isn't that strange that the reason we rely on fossil fuels is apparently, you know, economic, but then our economy is propping up the entire industry? Yeah, and just so we're clear, if anyone isn't sure what these subsidies are, they are measures that are taken by governments to really artificially lower the price of fossil fuels, the likes of coal, oil, and natural gas. So, yeah, what you're saying is we couldn't afford it unless the governments were helping us afford it. Yep, you're spot on, James. Thanks, Jackson. <laughs> That's a first. Thanks for listening to Hot and Here. Please follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. The show is hosted by Jackson Williams and myself, James McManigan. Please tell your mates about the show and get them chatting about climate change. <laughs>